And welcome to Literally Gagging. This is a podcast where we delve into all of your favourite sexy books and we're going to see how many of them stand the test of time. We are going to be getting quite explicit, so if the prospect of sort of bits of the human anatomy being inserted into other bits of the human anatomy isn't for you, if it doesn't have you sort of slippery with longing, maybe this isn't the podcast for you. My name is Hannah and I'm here with my co-host Molly. How are you, Molly? Hello, I'm good. How are you on this wonderful, lovely furloughed day? I'm not bad. I'm very much enjoying being furloughed I'll be honest oh I mean the naps are unreal I've achieved basically nothing for the past three weeks um but my sims are thriving all we can ask for at this economic hardship is a thriving sims community I hope they're all doing well and now we all know how it feels to be a sim please stop getting rid of the doors and killing your sims or trapping them (laughs) in swimming pools it's not cool it's cruel and all those times that you just walk into a room and be like I don't know what I'm here for because someone just deleted the command and you just stood there like a lemon (laughs) and then you just automatically go to the fridge because there is nothing else to do i am amazed by the amount of biscuits that i'm able to consume that's the thing that i've really learned about myself i made cookies today and i think that's going to be a downfall my partner's alone with them right now in the kitchen and i am worried (laughs) do you need to go and rescue some now before we get started i might have to go and get some Um, and what are you drinking for this record so for today i went out spent the last of my uh proper paycheck before I get my furlough one on a new gin that I saw in Sainsbury's Mm. it's a pomegranate and rose gin which is brewed right here where I am currently trapped in the great town of Warrington one of the northwest's many armpits (laughs) and I've paired it with a pink lemonade oh my goodness are you trying to make up for the strong way last week I uh, (laughs) well I had a little one of those whilst I was getting ready I'm not pre-drinking pre-drinking for the podcast what are you partaking in today Hannah I'm having the same as last week I'm afraid getting through that elderflower gin liqueur So this week we are talking about Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence. Um, By that sound, we're going to assume that Molly didn't like it. (laughs) Molly did not enjoy this book, no. So before we get into why Molly disliked it quite so heartily, (laughs) Lady Chatterley's Lover is one of the last novels by D.H. Lawrence, who was born in 1885, so we're going back quite a long way this time. And he was the child of a barely literate minor and his mother had been a teacher but was forced into factory work because of sort of money troubles in the family. Never quit your dreams for a man, lady. (laughs) Never do. Obviously, very working class background, not a lot of education, but he was one of the first people to win a scholarship to the private school that he went to, went on to be a teacher, went to university, absolutely smashing it all round. Good for him. Little working class lad, come good and wrote lots of novels, short stories. Lady Chatterley's Lover was one of his final novels. And the reason that we've chosen it is because it is very like famously a sexy book because it was banned for many years because of it being so saucy. An abridged version of it was published in the States in 1928, but it was banned in the UK and didn't actually get published until 1960 here after a court case. The, uh, the phrase the prosecution used was 
is this a book that you would wish your wife or your servants to read? Which tells you quite a lot about the demographic of people they were aiming that question at. Um, The jury was almost entirely male, but eventually it did get published in 1960 and it sold out within hours of being published. Because of the scandal around it, that made it interesting. A policy the sun has gone with for many a year now. If there's a scandal around it, it'll sell. And the main thing that people seem to have the problem with was he was appeared to be suggesting that the current class system, A, didn't work particularly well. And the book really considers sex as like this big equaliser, that rich people, poor people, everyone sort of has sex in the same way. It's something that everyone wants to do. And if we kind of take ourselves back to our more like animal passions, then that removes class entirely. And that's why rich people didn't want poor people reading it. The idea that rich people are rich because they're better than us. That's what they want you to believe. It's not true. So I really, really, really struggled reading this book. I did as well. I mean, I think it took me a couple of months to chew my way through it. I was just, every time I looked at it and I was like, no, it's so boring. And I don't know whether that's because it's oldie-worldie language that they were using. I did a little bit of research before we were doing this and he is despised by Kate Millett, the second wave feminist, and by Simone de Beauvoir, who published that he is phallocentric in the way that he speaks. And I've got to say, I 100% agree. He seems like what is more commonly known now is a brochalist mm. we've all met them we all work with one we've lived with them you might actually be dating a brochalist warning ladies is your man a brochalist is he a brochalist in the fact that he thinks he's better than you because he knows all the smith songs uh, and looks down at you because he thinks he's smarter than you for understanding them but still thinks that it's okay to call you darling and sweetheart but it's like no 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 women's rights you know they're all a bit of a twat aren't they i have two brochure lists in mind and both of them you probably know as they did english at uh, uni with us <laughs> i already definitely know who one of them is one of them is a gentleman who was in my russian class yes ladies and gentlemen i thought in first year russian would be a good free elective to take it was not and i was trying to seduce him and i got him back to my student housing and he decided to read me some poetry he'd written about Brighton and then fell asleep and I just feel like D.H. Lawrence is kind of a similar dude. The guy who read you poetry about Brighton is the same guy who I was actually really good friends with in first year until I got a better mark than him on an essay and then he never spoke to me again. (laughs) Um, So that says it all. (laughs) I would agree. I feel like D.H. Lawrence has got a touch of the brochalist to him. I also found it very hard to read. I will admit that in order to keep myself focused on it, I could only read it if I was also listening to the audiobook at the same time like a small child having someone read along with them (laughs) and I also in order to get through it I listened to the audiobook on 1.5 speed just because it was going so slowly it's so slow Maxine Pete did a beautiful job of reading it to me but she was just taking it what a hero she was taking it slow it picked up I will admit the last hundred pages or so Mm. it picked up there is sex in it yeah oh it is very sexy for the time but it is interspersed with massive, massive chunks of text about Bolshevism and industrialization and the class system and masculinity and all and these just things. Just thoughts. Connie, the main character's thoughts go on for so long sometimes. And it's all intertwining about the stars and all of this. And A lot of descriptions of trees 
and hills and things mm. as well, which personally don't do anything for me. I also found difficult, and this might be because I do come from the Thames estuary, so I'm not used to the local dialect. But when they wrote things in Northern, I was like, I don't understand this. <laughs> I really, I really don't. And I had to copy and paste some bits and send them to my friends who come from Derbyshire and be like, I'm really sorry, what does this mean? Because they describe them as having a Derbyshire yeah. accent some of the time. I was like, they're doing this on purpose because he can speak he proper. Can, and that's like, he can. That I never quite managed to lock down. I couldn't work out which was his like original accent and which was the one he was putting on. Yeah, it was really hard to tell because I think he did have like a touch of the Derbyshire's, but then when he went to the posh school and then the army had to RP it up. I didn't struggle as much with that. Maybe partly because someone was reading it to mm. me, so obviously it's easier to tell what's being said. But also because that is my mum's neck of the woods. Um, so even though she doesn't have a particularly strong accent anymore, a lot of people on her side of the family, I mean, not to this extent, but there were phrases or little like turns of phrase and stuff that I could understand a bit better. So maybe that made it slightly easier for me to read. Well, um, we'll have to do one in Scots one day. So I have that advantage <laughs> of understanding the language. I think most people kind of have an idea of what this book's about. I think it's one of those that's kind of passed almost into like just common knowledge because it's one that people reference. Yeah. So even if you've not read it necessarily, you might have an idea. And the, um, the BBC did an adaptation not too long ago with the sexy, sexy Richard Madden. Oof. Yeah, oofed indeed. As Oliver Mellors, the, uh, the lover of Lady Chatterley. And I've watched two separate versions because I thought I will cheat and watch the film. I watched two separate versions of the film which had two completely different endings <laughs> and they are all different from the book. And so that didn't help at that all. That is the most confusing part. So Connie is our main character. She is well, she becomes Lady Chatterley early on in the book. She marries Clifford, she becomes Lady Chatterley. But she's come from a sort of a slightly liberal a bohemian background bohemian is the word she's been to europe she's had european lovers while she was there and she comes back and she marries clifford chatterley he goes off to the war he comes back sans legs essentially everything from the waist down has does not, does work. not work that penis cannot get everything up. from the waist down doesn't work they have in many ways to start with quite an ideal like intellectual relationship they're quite good emotional support for each other they seem to get on quite well they talk a lot they're both wordy booky sort of she doesn't seem terribly bothered by the fact that he is disabled and impotent and they still have this kind of quite nice intellectual relationship then there is a bit where she sleeps with an irish writer who i thought was quite fun to be honest he turned into a dickhead oh, did you through. think he was a bit of a ride because he was a really interesting character as a working class person from ireland who'd come to england and made a name for himself in kind of the upper echelons of society by writing satirical plays about rich British people and they were all like oh my goodness how charming wonderful and then realised they're like hang on he's making fun of us Tans. but they didn't realise that until he was like they'd made him famous already so she has an affair with him but she doesn't really seem that into it to be honest it's just kind of that he's there and he's young and again he's quite like intellectual and stuff so I think that that does it for her she's a she's a brainy lady they're both just game do you know what like 
back in the day, we think it was all like, does thou have a tissue on Kajul's? Oh, they're touching hands. No, they're just bare bones like, you want to do this? And she's like, cool, come to me at six. And we also we also think that we're bored being furloughed, but like we've got Twitter and stuff, haven't we? They didn't, there wasn't much to do. All she can do is sew and roam her mansion. And not have sex with her husband. So she has an affair with him and that kind of goes south because he's a, just a bit of a prick. Mm. And then Clifford is saying to her like, oh, maybe we should have a baby. Clifford is happy for her to have sex with somebody else in order for them to have an heir to the Chatterley name. I think that they really try and emphasise the fact that he has to be a lord or of high breeding for the baby. And she says she doesn't really want to do that. And then we meet Oliver Mellors, Oliver who is Mellors. the gamekeeper. Sexy Mellors. And he is earthy and he has had this like kind of quite checkered history because he's got a child but he's not with the mum there's one version of it where he's played by sean bean and i think that really sums him up as a character oliver mellers is sean bean essentially they're the same one and the same and he lights a lights a flame in her and they have this torrid affair and there's a lot of sneaking around and then ultimately, do we want to just spoil the ending and then we can talk about everything properly? Fuck it. If you haven't read it, like it's... It's been out for over 100 years. Like, even if you watch a video, one of the many versions that were around, it's still going to be different to the ending. So we're not spoiling the book for you or the film. You can just guess which ending you're going to see or read. Who knows? You can Who pick, knows? pick your favourite ending. It's like a choose your own adventure book. You can just pick which ending you like best. Her husband is happy for her to have an affair as long as he is of a good social standing. And obviously the gamekeeper is not, not that. She goes to Venice with her sister to try and pretend that she got knocked up in Venice. She was like, I can come back from Venice pregnant and everyone there's rich so he won't mind or ask any questions particularly when really she's pretty sure she's already pregnant by the gamekeeper. But while she is in Venice, all these rumours start spreading. It kind of gets out. And at the end, they both kind of have to go into exile, essentially, don't mm. they? Like, he has to go and live on his own. She goes to Scotland. He goes... Where does he go? He goes somewhere. He goes to a farm somewhere up north. The ending's really ambiguous, which is quite rare with these mm. books, um, especially ones from this period, um, because particularly with the, the classics, generally women who have extramarital affairs or try and have children with people aren't their husbands etc etc die normally but this one seems kind of fairly positive like she didn't die which is the normal punishment kind of like errant women and the whole book ends with a letter that he's written to her saying basically we'll both stick out this time that we're apart and then we will get to live happily ever after and you don't ever get to see whether that happens Mm. or not but it's a slightly more positive ending i would say than some of the other books from the same kind of period really lets you like he throws the dice and he lets you decide how the outcome is which is yeah it's it's strange because as someone who's grown up with tv all of their life i like a bit of closure yeah i quite like an ambiguous ending i'd like to have known was she actually pregnant or was she just hysterical because she never finds out is there's quite a lot of her saying that she feels like she's probably pregnant and i don't think that's good enough she talks about her womb far too much actually fuck it if you want to talk about your womb that much you go for it but it is a bit odd how much she feels things in her womb and her womb is a flutter. And there's one time where they have sex and she's like, yeah, that's it, I am pregnant. 
You don't know that. She seems, yeah, she seems very, like, driven by her womb. Her womb is very involved in this, like, more involved than I think most people's wombs are in their general sex lives. Yeah, the womb is just sort of there and happy or angry, depending on what time of month it is. What do the TV shows do different, then? What's the Every version I've watched has cut out Venice because, let's face it, that's expensive. <laughs> Why would you do that? Venice doesn't happen. I I found Venice a little bit wearing as well, to mm. be honest. So, yeah, in the BBC one, Mrs Bolton... So, Mrs Bolton is a character who is brought on to look after Clifford. And in the book, she's an older woman. I say older, she's like in her 40s. But that was old <laughs> for the time. Her husband died down pit, one of the pits that the Chatterleys own... And she trained as a nurse. She, after that, she helped look after soldiers and other wounded colliers. Collier is a word I never knew until I read this book as well, by the way. I did. I just called them down pit people or miners, <laughs> just miners. I don't know. Why do we need another word? So in the BBC adaptation, Mrs. Bolton is played by Jodie Colmer. What? Yeah, yeah, she's played by Jodie Comer, which I think there's an age disparity there. I mean, Jodie Comer's an incredible actress, but I don't think she's that good. <laughs> good enough to add 20 years onto her age. No, and they change it so that in the book, they sort of mention that Mrs. Bolton and Clifford, I would say it's more like a mother-son yeah. relationship, the way that she cares for him and looks after him and plays chess with him and all this sort of stuff. But she also wants to social climb a little bit, so she's happy to learn these things. Whereas in the BBC adaptation she sort of slightly falls in love with Clifford and in a fit of jealousy tells Clifford about Lady Chatterley and Mellors because she sees them coming back together and then Lady Chatterley Connie asks um, Clifford for a divorce and he knows about the baby gives her the divorce and then he like yells from the top of his mining tower like the world is That sounds amazing. (laughs) And then they drive off together quite happily into the sunset. And there's also a really weird scene in the BBC adaptation where he has electroshock therapy to the point where I had to text you and be like, "Um, I don't remember this happening in the book. Did I just really miss a scene? And you're like, no, no, no. It definitely doesn't happen in the book. So there's a lot different. And in the other one, there's a 1970s, 80s one on Netflix. And I would encourage everyone to watch it because it has got so much nipple and bush in it. Full on sex scenes. Oh, God. You actually see her wanking. Again, this is something we've, we've discussed last week. It's about her being sexually awakened by this man. I don't personally believe that that would exclusively be in the presence of that man. But I also appreciate that female masturbation probably wasn't high on D.H. Lawrence's agenda in the 1920s. I don't think much was on his agenda apart from himself. So good for that adaptation. I will go and watch it. Go and watch it. If you've had a couple of bevs, get yourself a couple of quarantinis. Have a corona. And settle in for a fun night. So what did, obviously we've said it's very political and those bits aren't very sexy or interesting no what did you think of the sex in it i thought for the time it was actually a little bit sexy sometimes she doesn't seem as into it but she sort of 
She comes around. Yeah. I can't remember exactly when the first time they have sex is, but it was quite a long way after that that I made a note of going, this one was actually sexy and seemed like she wanted to be there. But I do appreciate that. The point of the book partly is her sexual awakening. And so it takes a little while for her to be comfortable with the fact that this is something that she wants. So this is probably about to be the third, second or third time they've had sex. She felt the horror of his body terribly near to her and alive oh no not now she cried trying to push him away why not it's six o'clock you've got half an hour nay nay i want you he held her fast and she felt his urgency her old instinct was to fight for her freedom but something else in her was strange and inert and heavy his body was urgent against hers she hadn't had the heart to fight anymore and it just feels like she's like, ah, go on then. She literally, like, two paragraphs down from that, says that she, she, the phrase is, she was giving up. And I'm like, that's not sexy. No. There's one really weird sex scene that I would like to talk about. I sort of lose where they are in the timeline of this because I was just a bit weirded out by it all. And in the 1970s version of the film, they go quite deep into this. It's where she goes dancing out in the rain and comes back with a load of flowers and starts putting flowers in his pubes. And she's like, oh, you have four different colour hairs on you. The colour on your head, the colour of hair on your chest... The colour of your pubes. And then, I don't know where the fourth colour is, but it's somewhere. Oh, moustache, sorry. That was the fourth type of hair she said, moustache. And then she, like, puts loads of flowers into his pubes. It goes, he looked down and saw the milky forget-me-nots in the hair on his groin. I that's where to put forget-me-nots in the man hair. Maybe that is a nicer way of saying pubes. I think it's trying to say, like, don't forget my penis. And then they start calling each other John Thomas and Lady Jane. <laughs> and I didn't know if that was a historical thing I was missing out on, whether the education system had failed me. But I was like, oh, surely you can think of sexier names for your genitals than John Thomas and Lady Jane. When it happened, I went, I don't get mm-hmm. this. And I think I tried to Google it and couldn't get any more like enlightenment there's a couple of different occasions with different people where basically the fact that they're talking about the female orgasm at all i think is quite impressive for the 1920s very much so there's a scene quite early on where she's having sex with michaelis which is the name of the irish writer and he gets very offended because they're having sex he comes she doesn't and then she basically finishes herself off sort of using the fact that like he's there but he's not instrumental in that and he gets very upset about it and he says when at last he drew away from her he said in a bitter almost sneering little voice you couldn't go off at the same time as a man could you you'd have to bring yourself off you'd have to run the show and he gets really irate and very like toxic masculinity upset insecure about the fact that they never come together and that he does his thing and then she does hers and he is clearly like very emasculated by it we all know in the films and in the porns that they come together at the same time and looking back on it we're all like it very rarely do you get a simultaneous it's not gonna happen every single time no they call an orgasm and there's a crisis yeah they do which i think is weird i think you know our economy is in a crisis 
that's not sexy. We're having a climate crisis. It's hot, but it's not sexy. An orgasm should be sexy, none. I would say so. This scene really for Connie seems to be like quite a big turning point. I think this is mm. the point at which she's like, fuck this. Oh, wait, men are trash. Yeah, because he gets very, very upset about it. And she's like, don't you want me to have a nice time? I thought we were having a nice time together. And he's like, yeah, on my terms. Which is a brocheless thing, I do believe. Brocious are like, oh yeah, female orgasm, great. Unless, you know, you're not doing it their way. Yeah, unless you want something different from what they think you should want. It's not poetry, lads. I can tell you that for now. It is not poetry. Brighton Pier is not getting anyone off. Not the one. But this comes up again after that scene that you were talking about where he seems to sort of coerce her or... I don't want to use the word force. That seems quite excessive, but... No. He start. He's like, come on, let's do it. And she doesn't really want to. And then she gives up. But that is the first time that they come together. And he's really happy about it. And this is another thing mm. for... Oliver Mellors it seems like quite a big deal for him as well Um, and so this first time it happens he's like we came off together that time he said and she didn't answer because she didn't want to be there Um, (coughs) it's good when it's like that most folks live their lives through and they never know it he's like really really happy with this and it kind of happens a few that was the first time it happens and then it is something that comes up again and again Um, but it's interesting because in the same way that Michaelis does earlier on in the book where he's very very offended at the idea of her getting herself off. Mellors is kind of educating her about the sexual world because he is a worldly experienced man. And even though she has had, he's not the first affair she's had, and she's specifically said at the beginning that she's had some trysts with young European men in her bohemian younger life. Everyone seems to assume that she's like, she needs things explaining to her. Her father describes her at one point as a demi-verge, which... It's a weird thing for your dad to say to you, I'm not going to lie. Proper weird thing for your dad it's to say. It's a weird thing. So Mellors is kind of educating her about all these different kinds of women and the way that they relate to sex. And he says that the hard sort of women are the ones who are the devil to bring off all and they bring themselves off which was what his wife used to do so he's very offended by the idea of women coming on their own essentially this he says writhing their loins till they bring themselves off against your thighs i think that sounds sort of hot but mostly they're the lesbian sort it's astonishing how lesbian women are consciously or unconsciously seems to me they're nearly all lesbians i don't think he really understands what a lesbian is it's not like that um the midnight beast song it's not just a woman who doesn't want to have sex with you it's like oh if you don't want to have sex with me you must be a lesbian and again brochalists they do this they're very much on this and then there's a little bit just the page over from that where he says that there's no real sex left in the world Partly because of industrialization, it gets it's very political this book as well, but there's no real people left, there's no real sex left. Machines make me less sexy. <laughs> <laughs> there is quite a lot of sex in the book, yeah. which is good because that's what we came in for. They really. really get in there with the thrusting and the crises and the pubes and the way they talk about how erect the phallus gets sometimes, it feels like you're worshipping at the temple of the phallus. There's one chapter where I think that they have sex like maybe three or four times in a night and honest to god who has the energy connie's meant to be 28 like at this point so our age mellers i think is meant to be in his 
40s, late 30s, 40s. And he's got a very active job. He's doing like manual running around with a dog in the fields all day. Where's he got this energy from? Just who has that energy? Who has the time? They didn't have lube back then. The chafing. Her <laughs> badge must be so painful. For a absolute mansplaining brooch list, um, and also a man writing in the early 1900s. And I don't think he does a terrible job of writing a woman, which I think is often a, a criticism that is thrown at male authors. I've read much worse books by men about women, but it does seem to be very phallocentric. This bit, this is like the second time they have sex out of their four a day sex romp. It says, the sun through the low window sent a beam that lit up his thighs and slim belly and the erect phallus rising darkish and hot looking from the little cloud of vivid gold red hair. She was startled and afraid. Why is she still startled and afraid if they've had sex like four times? After they've had sex, she then goes to it and goes, and now he's tiny and soft like a little bud of life, she said, taking the small penis in her hand. Isn't he somehow lovely on his own, so strange and so innocent, and he comes so far into me. You must never insult him, you know. He's mine too. He's not only yours, he's mine, and so lovely and innocent. And she held the penis soft in her hand. If he's going to be emasculated by anything, it should be that. It's interesting how he talks about how it goes from, like, hot and angry looking to, oh, look at the penis. <laughs> but there is, you know, for, for the time, there is a lot of sex chat like this, and... There's one particular sex scene which I didn't... I thought it was just a sex scene. I'm not going to lie. I didn't get the background (laughs) of it and I'm going to try and find it and read it to you now because I honestly... I was doing some research and when I found out what this was about, I had to text Hannah and be like, again, have I just misconstrued all the different versions of this film I've watched (laughs) to the book? Like, what have I missed? So... I'm just going to read it to you all now. I want you to get in the mindset, you know, you're in a wood cabin in the middle of Derbyshire. There's a dog maybe watching you. There's a log (laughs) fire. Some chickens outside. Some chickens outside clucking away. You may have had a beer from the cold larder. So this is what you do. It was a night of sensual passion in which she was little startled and almost unwilling, yet pierced again with piercing thrills of sensuality, different, sharper, more terrible than the thrills of tenderness, but at the moment more desirable. Though a little frightened, she let him have his way, and the reckless, shameless sensuality shook her to her foundations, stripped to the very last and made a different woman of her. It was not really love. It was not voluptuousness. It was sensuality, sharp and searing as fire, burning the soul to tinder, burning out the shames, the oldest, deepest shames in the most secret places. It cost her an effort to let him have his way and his will of her. She had to be passive, consenting thing, like a slave, a physical slave. Yet the passion licked around her, consuming, and when the sensual flame of it pressed through her bowels and breast, she really thought she was dying, yet a poignant, marvellous death. Right, kids, strap in. What just happened? What do you think just happened? I can tell you what happened, Molly. Hannah enlightened me as to what happened just then. You just fucked her in the arse, babe. I mean, (laughs) I 
didn't get that. There was not one mention of an anus in there. There was not one mention of a hole. Now I've reread it. I get that the fire and the pain and the tingling, but come on. I think, I feel like the pain is the big indicator. That was like the fifth time that night. Of course she's going to be in pain. The most secret places, Molly the most secret places and this is it this this scene is a big part of why this book was so controversial because apparently back in the 20s they all got this they all like they knew what was going on we don't because we're so used to being like yeah yeah he fucked her in the ass like that's what it would say in a book today he did her up the bum but this is a scene which was really integral in the court case I watched a documentary about this and the they had the copy of the book that the judge had used as part of the trial. And when you opened... Did he spaff all over it? Was it covered in his spaff? When you opened it, this was the page that it fell open to. Yeah, it's covered in his spaff. His semen's all over that. He loves a bit of anal. Even better, it wasn't even the judge that read it. It was the judge's wife whose job it was to go through and mark out the sexy bits. Oh, so it's not even spaff, it's lady batter. That judge's wife was like, oh, I'm just going to... Oh, it's very important for the trial that I just make sure I've not missed anything in the air. I'm just going to sit on this page (laughs) and uh, let it zoom me up the arse. Um, As part of the court case, one of her jobs was to go through and do a running total of all of the the naughty words in the book. So she loved it. That slur, she loved it. (laughs) We don't condone that kind of (laughs) behaviour. Molly's Molly's doing an impression of a brochurist. The word fuck or fucking is in there 30 times. The word cunt is in there 14 times. They go cunt heavy. There's a lot of cunt. I appreciate it. Because he refers to her as a as a good cunt. And she's like, what is mm. cunt? And he's like, I'm not going to do the accent. I'm just going to paraphrase. Go on, do it. Do it in Derbyshire. It's your mum's tongue. And doesn't to know, cunt, it's the down there. And what I get when I'm inside thee. And what thou gets when I'm inside thee. And it's as it is or aunt. That's what it says. Brilliant. That was magical. And yeah, so she doesn't know what cunt is. She doesn't know what the word fuck means i don't think there's i will say and i've written on this page as well there's quite a lot of um because his accent is a big sticking point in the book oh it's 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 a hot mess it's an actual hot mess because he very much goes between this this thick like broad um and being written in dialect and then just talking normally but there's some quite I thought quite cute banter of her like trying to do his accent, which I thought was nice. See, my favourite bit was um, so her sister eventually gets looped in on the affair and her sister helps her escape for an evening and she's like, oh, come and meet my squeeze. And the sister's like, fine, let me park up somewhere so the scallions don't steal my car. And they go into the woods and uh, she's like, why you talk like that though? And he's like, what do you mean? She's like, why are you speaking like that? Like, I know you speak posh. Why are you talking like that? And then he's like, but this is Derbyshire. Should thou not speak like I'm from Derbyshire? And she's like, no, but if you speak posh though around posh people, why aren't you speaking posh though? And then he's like, get out. And she's like, all I'm saying is, why aren't you speaking posh though? And I respect her for that. She called him out on his bullshit. Hilda is a lesbian though. She has a uh, a dalliance in Venice. Is she a proper lesbian? Did that pass me by? Yeah, there's bits where she says she's given up on men. Mm-hmm. She's had a kid, she's Not. given up on men. And then she, when she goes to Venice, she gets into the company of a woman. As if that's... And she likes to drive. That's all you need to know. As if that's the first bit of like actual LGBT nonsense we've had and it's completely passed me by. <laughs> <laughs> Missed that. Well, I also thought that Bellas might have been a bi. 
because of the way he talks about his army boss and he's like oh, oh he loves his army boss well they do say connie says to him oh did you love him he's like i i loved him and i think for 1920 speak that might have been not just how nowadays we casually say to our friends okay love you bye yeah because he specifically refers to him as a passionate man um he's very clever very intelligent um i lived under his spell while i was with him i sort of let him run my life and i never regret it and i feel like that's quite a lot for a colleague which i would say because your army boss as much as i'm sure you do lots of you know what happens in the army stays in the army exactly don't ask don't tell ultimately your army colonel is your is your boss isn't he is a colleague yeah so to let him run your life and live under his spell is maybe it's a bit a weird but then i don't know i've never been in the army maybe that's normal but then i think i think bombing's normal in the army who knows like it is at posh schools like it is at posh schools yeah Mellis has been practicing that's why he was so good at the secret places oh sorry we didn't get to how many times balls were said i cut you off at cunt fucking fucking 30 cunt 14 balls 13 shit and ass six pounds uh, six pounds six times each six pounds six. shit and ass <laughs> shit and ass six times each cock four piss three was cock only four? Cock was only four. He does use phallus. And manhood. Phallus is not a swear. Manhood's not a swear. Cunt is the only synonym for vagina, though. Because the other way they keep describing is that someone has cut to the very quick of her. That happens quite a lot, and I don't like that. Ooh, don't cut to the quick of me. It's a bit womby, isn't it? It's a bit of this womb chat. It's a bit womby, yeah, it's womb And chat. there was another thing which I think could be the reason the anal scene passed you by. She does a lot of talking about feeling things in her bowels. Yeah. Which means that when they use bowels in a sexual context later to literally mean bowels, you don't notice it because you've been desensitised to her doing a lot of bowel chat earlier on. That was one of the things that I highlighted and it was like she... So she first stumbles upon Mellors because she's going out for a walk and he's there bathing in his nud you know you have to bathe outside don't you back then there's no central heating you've got to shit and piss and shower outside so she comes across him all naked and lathered up and it says something like she felt it in her bowels and i can honestly say i've never looked at any partner and gone "Mm, i'm gonna have a shit after this do you know what i mean like (laughs) so sexy i feel it in my bowels and one thing that i know about you molly is you do think about shitting quite a lot i do i really do so the fact that i have separated the two is quite a big thing for me so maybe that's why the anal chat passed us both by a little bit because we were just used to her inappropriate bowel chat bowels and wombs they're very separate things aren't they you'd want them to be to her clearly not so i was talking about his sister she's a strong independent lesbian who don't need no man calls mellas out in his shit another strong female character who gets slandered through this whole thing is mella's wife yeah and mella's wife is the i feel like she's the original cardi b <laughs> yes in the sense that she hears her ex's back in the area she goes to his gaff and is like well you're married to me i own half of this and he's like woman be gone and she's like I'm not having this and he's like fine i'm fucking off and she's like do you know what i'm gonna do i'm going to break in and i'm gonna lie in his bed naked until he comes home and then make him re-love me again and have we not all had those thoughts have we not <laughs> tried to trap our man in this way obviously the pregnancy didn't work mm-hmm. but I was like, props to her. She's living her best life. She's not worried about the phallus or the 
the bowels. She is very mistreated in this book, in my opinion. Yeah. Because she is just... He marries her and he likes her because she's passionate and she's wild and she... Because she wants to have sex with him. Which, I mean, is a good enough reason. It's I think that's not a bad reason to marry somebody. But it is then a bad reason if you then decide that that's the reason you don't like them. is for all the reasons you initially yeah. quite fancied them. But it comes back to the fact that she was getting herself off and he didn't like that fact. Mm. He was a bit like, no, you should only come when I come. And she was like, nah, I'm going to ride around until I get my kicks off. She's probably the only person in the book who really, I think, has anything near a kind of modern, open relationship with sex. And she's referred to as vulgar and they call her a low bitch and like she's very looked down on because mm. she is working class even more working class than mellers they make that distinction is that mellers bettered himself by going to the local grammar school just like a certain dh lawrence did yeah. he bettered himself he joined the army he he's tried to social climb and then that's one of the things that people ultimately don't like about Mellors and kind of comes back at the end is that he kind of had the chance to break into the middle class and chose not to and now is in this weird limbo where he is still working class through choice but thinks he's better than everybody else. Uh, the only thing I will criticise her on is maybe her parental care because I did have to Google, do they have a child together? It was very unclear because the nan sort of looks after the kid. There's a bit where they say when the mum came back that she went to pick the child up after school and the child bit the mum. I love that. I'm fine with that. And ran off and went back to Granny's. So I was like, maybe she's not the best role model, but she's living her best life. If they'd have had contraception back then, that child would not have existed. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? She'd have been free. Don't bring children into the world that you don't want. That is the... Um the moral of the story. That is literally Mellers's big point, isn't it? He talks about that a lot, how he doesn't want to bring any more children into this world because of the class system and suffering and that kind of shit. But he's already done it, which is the bamboozle. He has already done it. And also I feel like, I mean, I don't blame him. Like I feel like that now because the world's on fire and falling apart at the same time. Yeah, but Hannah, you don't have an accidental child though, do you? Do you? No, I don't. <laughs> You don't even have cats. Oh, God, no. Like, they're, they're accidental children. Yeah, the child is mistreated. His wife is... She's a bit of a legend, but also not ideal in that she's also mistreating her child. We don't love that. Mm. But interesting, I feel like because he uses these situations to explore his own personal philosophies, kind of all the women in it play a different role. So there's, like, her sister the lesbian who has one view of the world and then there's the woman who looks after Clifford and then there's Connie and then there's the wife who all are very different characters and serve different purposes. I was listening to a BBC4 thing because they're the only people who talk mm -hmm. about D.H. Lawrence in modern society as BBC4 and it was a famous life thing. They were talking about D.H. Lawrence's wife, Hilda. So this was like his third marriage or third long-term partner, whatever you want to call it. And Hilda, according to this podcast, was a 
rather large and forceful German woman. I love that. And they talk about how they met and Hilda's first husband was an hour late to this dinner party. So she went up to Lawrence and was like, pants off upstairs, let's go. And that's sort of how they met. But they talk about her on this podcast as being rather large and domineering. And Hilda was also having an affair with an Italian guy at the time that D.H. Lawrence was writing this. Okay. So that's why part of it is skewed, I think, because, well, D.H. Lawrence was dying of TB when he was writing this. Apparently there's three versions of it, which may explain the three versions I've I was seen. I going to say, maybe everyone's just got different source material. <laughs> just randomly published different ones the book i've got i think was published in 1980 so there might be new adaptations but i think you can see a lot of his wife hilda in the female characters that they all kind of almost represent different parts of her like mella's first wife obviously is that kind of over domineering domineering is a good word and sexually aggressive god i hope that's on my tombstone sexually aggressive (laughs) um and then connie's obviously having an affair um yeah interesting it was an interesting point and i just thought for a podcast of all what was clearly white men talking about a woman's appearance yeah but that's radio four connie's appearance crops up in this quite a few times oh my god in i would say quite odd ways i'm gonna let you take the floor on this one i feel like you've got strong feelings here right so (laughs) i've got strong feelings and the only reason is i come from a very aggressive glaswegian family like both sides my mum my dad one of six from Glasgow. My mum's from Easter House, my dad's from Postle Park. You don't really get more Glaswegian than that. And the way that they describe Connie as she looks Scottish or country-like. Now, I don't know what that means. If you look Scottish to me, it's that you've never seen a vegetable and you think that Buckfast is one of your five a day. Like, that is genuinely a Scottish vibe. To be this wholesome and country sort of looking person, but also be Scottish at the same time. And he sort of switches halfway through the text. So when I was reading through it again today, I was like, oh, for the first like 150 pages, he describes her as being country. And then for the rest of the book, he describes her as being Scottish. And I just want to call him out um, because we will get independence one day and he's going to look like Boo Boo the Fool. Obviously, I imagine it is the comparison of her having this kind of like homely look. That was it. As opposed to aristocracy. She obviously comes from like a reasonably, must be a reasonably good family, but kind of she's quite bohemian. Well, her father's a knight because he's a painter. So he got a knighthood for his painting. So again, it's a weird class thing because obviously Clifford has almost married down by marrying her. Yeah. Because she's not old money. She's like arty, bohemian new money. And then she's marrying, well, stepping down again by going for their servants. Her dad is the one, though, who he still lives up in Scotland. He's on his second wife. Their mum died. He's just got a younger model after the first one died. And he's the one who's always telling her to have dalliances after Clifford's accident. He's the one who's like, my girl, you've got to get back on it. You can't be a, again, as he described her, a demi-verge, which is weird for your dad to be going, get your leg over. Yeah. The one character I feel like we haven't touched upon who actually gets the worst deal in all of this is Duncan. Yes. So Duncan is a family friend who has maybe fancied Connie for a while 
and they meet out in Venice and they convince him to say he's the father of the babby so that Mellors, when he claims his divorce, he's not the guilty party, she's the guilty party for stepping out on him. And it's just really weird that in return for him doing this, A, why would he? But B, he gets to paint Connie. That's all he wants in return. He is happy to have his reputation besmirched and to say that he has impregnated a woman who he has not impregnated in order for her to get a divorce from her husband and run off with her new boyfriend in exchange for doing a painting of her. Duncan's quite a respectable dude, I think. For him to go along with it just because he wants to paint her... It's a bit weird. It's very strange. I think my price would be a lot higher than that, personally. I think it would be actual money. Anyway, how wet did you get? How wet did you get? Are you like the ocean? How wet did you get? Are you like the Sahara Desert? How wet did you get? Are you somewhere in between now? How wet did you get? Let us know how wet you are. I would say, on the whole, not incredibly moist. I gave it three out of five on Goodreads, but obviously that's a different scale. That's an academic scale, yeah. That's not a vaginal scale. I'm going to give it, and I'm going to average it out. I'm going to give it a five. Five penises out of ten. I think that's fair. You do actually get, for the time, graphical sex explanation yes which we're desensitized to but 1930s molly flooding a bucket there were some bits where there were few and far between but there were a couple of scenes that i wrote at the top i was like that was actually quite sexy or there were some bits that were just quite nice and like when you first meet someone and you're having that early bit of a relationship it's very that yeah the political industrialization chat dried me up a little bit but i thought generally a solid five i think i'll agree with you with that it's a solid five penises you've got no one as charismatic as rupert campbell black from last episode we can't judge everyone against rupert campbell black though can we because we'll never get anywhere (laughs) rcb has ruined you for all other men no you're right oliver mellers as i said he's a solid sean bean he's a five out of ten and he's not going to die in this one But you don't just have to take our word for it. I have gone and done a little bit of research on Goodreads to see what other people thought of this book. Generally hovering around the three to four star rating. I wanted to highlight this one, which I think is exactly what we've just said. Basically, this book can be summed up like this. Blah, blah, sex, blah, blah, class, blah, sex, sex, blah, blah, class, England's economy, sex, 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 scandal, arguments, arguments, scandal, vacation time, blah, 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 sex, argument, scandal, blah, blah, the end. I mean, did we need to do the podcast if that review exists? <laughs> this is pointless now. Similarly to Hannah, who went on Goodreads, I went to Amazon, the lowbrow Goodreads, <laughs> and um, I got this review, which, again, I sort of think summed us up. Somehow, this book seemed far more exciting when it was banned, and I hid it under the blanket as a 13-year-old to read it, away from the prying eyes of my mother. There's something about forbidden fruits that makes us want to have them. However, it is worth reading, if only to compare the narrative to the new numerous films being made about this famous story. I haven't seen one film yet that really captures the characters of the time, their inner torment about their situation or the real conflict of their desires as portrayed so superbly by Lawrence. Definitely one to read, if only to find out what the fuss is about. This one I also enjoyed, which is very short. Amazon customer said, read it, that's it, pass it on. Never read it when all the hullabaloo came out, based in Nottinghamshire where I live. Besides the language, it's a good read. I mean, I think that's not unreasonable. 
It's not the worst. There we go. So that is another week done. That's it from us. Next week, we will be talking about Vox by Nicholson Baker, which is one that I hadn't heard of before we discovered it for the podcast. Nor had I. It was a very new one. So if you've read it, obviously tune in again and hear us talking about that. If you've not read it, you've got a week to read it. Um, And it's not very long. It's quite a short one. So you can probably get through it. You'll bang it out. You'll wank it out. And you'll be done within a couple of days, especially if you're quarantined and furloughed like us. What else have you got to do? If you've got nothing better to do, have a wank. Why not? (laughs) I really feel like it's what we all need to get us through another three weeks of this nonsense. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter at LitGagPod and on Instagram at LiterallyGaggingPod. And if you search Literally Gagging Podcast on Facebook, you'll find that if anyone still uses Facebook. You can email us at LiterallyGaggingPod at gmail.com. So please let us know if you have any book suggestions you'd like us to cover in future episodes, anything to say related to everything that we've covered this week. As always, stay safe. Get drunk. Wash your hands if you're wanking. Please wash your hands, especially if you're wanking. And especially if you've just cut chilies and you're wanking. The NHS does not need that strain. The NHS is under enough pressure. Please keep your wanking accidents to a minimum. Be safe out there, kids. Bye. Bye. A big thank you to Bobby Bates for doing all of our artwork and our logo and everything. To Bethany Southworth for our jingle. And the other incidental music is from Kevin McLeod of Incompetech, the king of royalty-free jams and saviour of media-to-do students the world over.